Good morning. This morning we're reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, here we go. Uh, So for the next three weeks, we are going to explore how the Christian gospel offers sexual clarity and sexual healing to those who are sexually confused and sexually hurting. I believe that sin's impact on human sexuality leaves its mark on all of us, that, that we are all, sexually speaking, broken people. Sexually speaking, I am a broken human being in the process of recovery. Many of us, many of you, whether you have been abused or used, or whether you are confused or perverted, or whether you have been peer pressured by the sex of our society, or whether you have been media drenched in our society's view of sex, or whether you are porn addicted, whatever the case may be, we are sexual refugees in need of shelter and in need of healing. And look, I cannot address, neither am I equipped to address every question you're going to have, every concern you're going to have, every objective objection, I should say, every objection that you're going to have over these next three Sundays. Uh, my calling as a minister of the gospel is, is to present to you Paul's original intent and meaning in his letter to the ancient Corinthian church. Um, and what you have known, as if you've been following along with me over the last month, is that Paul's primary concern with the church in Corinth was Their pride. Their pride was killing their unity and their health as the people of God in that city. 
But along the way, as we examine Paul's wisdom, we're going to discover from that ancient wisdom some wisdom for us regarding current issues. And some of our current issues as Christians in this society, a secularized post-Christian society, very much relate to what the ancient Corinthians were dealing with, questions about marriage and singleness and family and sexuality and what you do with the body that God has given you. So from Paul's ancient wisdom, we're going to discover very applicable guidance for current issues. Now, whatever isn't covered in the next three weeks, I want to encourage you, uh, let's talk about it. Uh, If you have a question or a concern or a hurt or an objection, uh, let me know. Let's save that for a cup of coffee and a conversation. Um, If I can't help, we will help you find the right person to talk to. Uh, Maybe it's appropriate to talk and discuss the matter as a community group, because many of you are in community groups, or with the people you're discipling, or the people who are mentoring you. Uh, Allow us to direct you to the growing wealth of resources on this very issue that is right there on the book table. Now, in chapter 5 of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, which is really the middle letter, only two survived, there are at least three letters that Paul sent from Ephesus across the sea uh, to the church he had planted five years earlier in Corinth. Um, And in chapter 5 of this letter, Paul responds to a report that he's heard about incest within the church. Apparently, it was open. It was a notorious situation. Now, we know this, and, and you may feel this way, but our secular friends presume that the Bible's views are legalistic and condemning. That's not true. Christians can be legalistic and condemning, and quite often are, but the Bible is not. Paul's advice, actually Paul's instruction, his command to the church there to purge the evil person from among them, to use his words, it was the most loving and gracious thing that he possibly could have instructed them to do. If the individual involved and everybody else involved and the entire church were all to heal and to be reconciled, Paul's instruction is the most loving thing he could have done. But you can't make sense of Paul's position without understanding the biblical concept of holiness, which has already been alluded to in the service at least a couple of times. You might remember, if you've been reading along with us, that the first thing Paul said in his letter, he said, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, that means made holy, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Saints means those set apart by God to be holy. And this is, in a a sense, what holiness is, that Christians are not removed from the world, but distinct within it. That's holiness. Not to be removed and separated from the world, but, but to be distinct as an alternate community within the world. And so, sexual healing requires the pursuit of truth and grace as a holy community. The pursuit of truth and grace as a holy community is what leads to sexual healing. 
And as we talk about this, I'm, I'm going to mention where I'm headed today. I want to talk about the process that leads to restoration, whether of an individual or of a community. The process for restoration that God in his word has laid out for us. And the attitude required to facilitate and enable that type of restoration. And then finally, the means that God has provided, the means, the power for that, rec- for that restoration. The process for restoration, the attitude for restoration, and the means for restoration. Now, the process for restoration that has been laid out in the scriptures by the Lord Jesus and his apostles is this, the pursuit of truth without neglecting grace. The pursuit of truth in our relationships, in our thinking, in our behavior, without neglecting grace. Paul confronts in absence a situation that the church should have confronted in person, but was not. You'll see in verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. The word for sexual immorality was porneia, right? Do the math. That's where porn, the word porn comes from. Porneia was a Greek word, and it meant very broadly sexual sin and deviancy. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Apparently, there was a church member in Corinth in an open relationship with, we're not sure exactly what, but probably his stepmother. Whether or not his biological father was still living, we're not told, but this is some form of incest. Now, you have to understand, ancient Roman and Greek cultures were highly promiscuous. But even in that setting, this was a scandal. Publicly speaking, uh, for everybody, this was a scandal. Paul's essentially saying, come on, people, even the neighbors are embarrassed about this. If if your neighbor who goes to the temple prostitute every Friday night is blushing when he hears about what this guy in the church is doing, you should all be embarrassed about this. Now, why had the church not addressed the man, addressed the situation? Well, we're not told. The letter does not indicate it. Uh, But now this this is what scholars speculate, and I think it's I think it's worth hearing. It may have been a matter of class, of class distinction. Look, if, if the person doing this was wealthy, was influential, was, as many wealthy, influential people in religious circles are, a benefactor and generous to the church, it would have been socially risky for people to confront the man. It would be like confronting your teacher or your parent, or a community leader. It would be like calling out your pastor or somebody else that, was a big, that is a big deal with a lot of clout in your life or in the community. There was some reason why people felt, especially if there were poorer people and slaves within the church at Corinth, where they felt like they couldn't confront the individual. But Paul's outrage, this is important, Paul's outrage is not about the scandalous situation itself, that sort of a thing may have been common. 
Paul's outrage is the fact that it hasn't been confronted. That's what Paul is upset about, that they weren't confronting the situation. So he calls for drastic measure. And he calls for drastic measure because by now the situation is public. The situation is notorious. And so he says in verse 2, and then he repeats it in verse 13, he quotes, he quotes the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the, the, the Old Testament Mosaic law, and he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And his language just intensifies in verses 4 and 5 where he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, he does not literally mean take the man and hand him to Satan. Oh, Satan's coming. You better do something because we're releasing you to Satan. Uh, the point here is, is what the essence of what Paul is saying is release the man into Satan's domain. What's Satan's domain? The world. Satan is called by Jesus and in scriptures the ruler of this world. Release the man into Satan's domain um, and in a sense, what you're doing is you're releasing him from church membership. And what that means is you're regarding this individual as an outsider. You're saying this person, by their actions, their continual, habitual actions and decisions, is not acting like an insider, is not acting like somebody who follows Jesus Christ. And so, in a sense, casting the person out into the domain of the world is to simply re- they're not locking the man up. They're regarding him as though he were, like everybody else in society, an outsider. It's like a parent kicking their teenager or their grown child out of the house because, because the child is doing things in the house to harm themselves and harm everybody else in the house. And in the name of loving that individual, they say, you've got to move out. We love you, but you can't stay here anymore because you're putting everybody else at risk. Your actions and your refusal to change is affecting all of us. A loving parent would do that. In the past with a a loved one, not a child of ours, but a loved one, Becky and I had to do exactly that. And that individual came back to me years later and said, you know, that was the best thing anybody ever did for me because I woke up when you said I had to leave. That's, in a sense, what Paul is doing here in hopes that the individual will be convicted of his ways and change. And here's the thing. If you have a problem with what Paul said, you have to take it up with Jesus because Paul's Lord Jesus essentially said the very same thing. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, Jesus talks about forgiveness and restoration. But in the middle of his conversation, his teaching on forgiveness and restoration, he tells them, he lays out a process by which healing and restoration can take place. He said to his disciples, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And then Jesus lays out this very helpful process by which the circle of accountability expands larger and larger the more unwilling the individual is to change. Until it gets to the point where Jesus said, and as, as the circle of accountability gets larger and larger, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, let me ask you, those of you who know your Bible, 
How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? I want to hear from you. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? He loved them. Yeah. He ate with them. He was, he was accused of eating with sinners by the religious, the religious elite. Yeah. Somebody else over here? One of the tax collectors, now the, the ancient Jews looked as ta- tax collectors as traitors, right? They, they, they were like Rome's henchmen, all right? Uh, yeah, Jesus took one tax collector and made him an apostle who wrote the gospel of Matthew. All right, so he ate with tax collectors and, and Gentiles. He made one of them his apostle. Anything else? Yeah. Uh, he challenged them directly about their sin. And thank you for saying that. Yes, he ate with them. He recruited one of them as apostle. He healed them. And he said to them, go and sin no more. And there you have it. Paul, in different words, reiterating the teachings of Jesus Christ. And this really gives you the heart of what biblical discipline is. The loving confrontation of sin intended to heal and restore a person. Biblical discipline is never driven by a condemning attitude because Jesus did not condemn. He came to save. And so the goal of biblical discipline, which is what Paul is talking about, it's just that it's gotten so drastic that drastic measures are required. But the goal of biblically-based discipline is always for an individual's and a community's restoration and healing. It is never to be punitive or condemning. In fact, Paul's subsequent letter, which we know as 2 Corinthians, would instruct the church to welcome this guy back. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, you find Paul says to them, this punishment, so this is later, in, in, right, later in the history of, of this relationship between Paul and the church, he says to them, this punishment by the majority is enough. He goes on to say to them, forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. See, Paul's goal was not only the restoration of one man, but the healing of the entire church body. And so he says back here in in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verses 6 and 7, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's using Jewish Passover language now. Do you not know that a little bit of leaven in a lump of dough makes the whole thing rise? If, If you're trying to keep flatbread, unleavened bread for Passover, don't let Leaven get into your bread or the the whole thing's going to blow up and you can't eat it for Passover. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. I'm not going to get into that in detail except to say this. This is what Paul's saying there with some Old Testament Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread imagery. Uh, and, and, And here's a good summary by one New Testament scholar who puts it into words for us. Don't we know that a little bit of cancer corrupts the whole body? Surgery is necessary. Clean out the cancer so that the body may be whole. 
if you know you're sexually broken, struggling, confused, if it's something you're struggling with now or if it's something that happened in the past and you're still wrestling with it, to be healed, you must seek out relationships where love is informed by truth. You, you cannot simply surround yourself with people who are going to affirm the way you're feeling and how you're acting, who will simply empower you and tell you that everything's okay, you're okay, there's nothing wrong. They're just going to tell you what you want to hear. You need to surround yourself with people who have the courage to say to you in love, in a spirit of gentleness, you're broken. Now, we know that God allows pain in the healing process, just like a good physician does. Inflicts pain in order to heal and eradicate the disease. We know that, but as Christians and as a church, we should not try to help God by inflicting more pain ourselves. And so not only do we need for restoration this, this, this process where we pursue truth without neglecting grace, we also have to have this attitude. The attitude we need to foster in order to be an environment where people can be restored is the pursuit of grace. So I'm going to emphasize the opposite. The pursuit of grace without neglecting the truth. In this passage, Paul pursues grace. Uh, he doesn't use the word, so don't, don't go looking for it. The, the word's not in there. Uh, but he's all about grace in this passage, particularly in the way, have you noticed, that he is avoiding legalism. Paul was a professional Pharisee. He was one of the best. He was notorious for being a great Pharisee. Um, he's not anymore. He's a recovering Pharisee now as he's writing this. Uh, so Paul knew all about being legalistic and trying to separate yourself morally from, from people who were less spiritually behaved than you. Paul knew all about that. Paul pursuing grace in this passage is all about avoiding a legalistic, condemning attitude. And I really think you see it in his opinion of outsiders. Look at verses 9 and 10. He clarifies what he had meant in a previous letter. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral people of this world. Now notice, he calls everybody out. He doesn't stop there. He says, not just the sexually immoral people, but the greedy, the swindlers, idolaters. Since then, you'd have to go out of the world. The only way to avoid worldliness is to be dead. Quite absurd, but that, that's his point. The only way to avoid people who are worldly is to be dead, is to be out of this world at long last. He's saying that's, that's not my point. Christianity is not about shunning or avoiding non-Christians. And he makes it clear that that's not what he's talking about. He goes on to say in verse 11, here was my point, everybody, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother and continues in this way. That's the issue Paul has, is, is, is not shunning and avoiding the world, but as an act of loving discipline, shunning and avoiding the individual who says, in, by name only, I'm a Christian. 
I represent Jesus Christ to society and isn't acting like it. No, that in, there are drastic measures needed. That's what I meant is really Paul's sense here. And he goes on to say in verses 12 and 13, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. In the original Greek, it's future tense, the word there in the last sentence. God will judge those outside. The word judge here in the Greek, it it had several connotations. It, It could mean many things. And in this passage, it's to be understood as discipline, rightly adjudicating right from wrong and applying a verdict and a process of healing. Discipline is how it's to be understood, not as condemnation. Paul's saying, look, it's none of my business to hold outsiders accountable. Church, it's none of our business to hold outsiders accountable. God will hold outsiders accountable. We have to hold each other accountable. And so the church must be less concerned about corruption from the outside and more concerned about corruption from within. Jesus said, recorded in Mark chapter 7, when the Pharisees, when the professional legalists were, um, were criticizing him uh, for, for declaring all foods clean, right? Saying to, to Jews, ceremonially speaking, you can eat, you, you can eat now. <laughs> uh, you can eat now. Uh, and he was criticized for that. Um, but he said something interesting. He said, don't you know that it's not the things in the world that get poured into an individual that defiles that person? He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. What comes out of the person is what makes you unclean before God. Just a good example would be in the parenting world. A lot of people in the room, not everybody, but a lot of people in this room are raising small children, are raising up young people who are still in the home. And you know this, and those of you who are beyond that phase of life know this and could teach us a thing or two. Raising children presents to you the constant dilemma of limiting outside exposure. Uh, Who can our kids be around? What can they watch on TV? Good grief, like... If you're raising kids now, we have blown that out of the water. What, what, what can kids view on these little powerful machines that they can put in their pocket, right? <laughs> um, who can our kids associate with? Uh, where should they be educated? Where, where should they play? With whom should they play? Who should be in the house? Where can they go? Should we homeschool them or private school them or public school them? There is this constant dilemma of trying to limit exposure to what influences them. I just want to say, and and we're gracious, uh, there are a lot of different ways to educate a kid and there are different parenting styles and I'm not going to speak in judgment for or against any of them, but I do want to quote Jesus, what comes out of a person is what defiles that person. So as you choose the education environment for your children, and as you watch them begin to make friends, and as you watch them begin to make their own choices and decisions in life, remember this. You can take a child out of the world, but you cannot take the world out of a child. Healing 
and holiness come from the inside out. Healiness works by the power of God from the inside outward. And it culminates in you individually and in all of us as a community. Holiness culminates in a good witness to outsiders. We can't have a good witness to our community and to our county and to the world if holiness does not develop from within us by the Spirit of God. Holiness without condemnation, okay? Holiness without condemning one another. Holiness, pursuing holiness without condemning the world and the community, that offers outsiders a picture of an alternative lifestyle. Christianity is, it should be, and always was, counter-cultural. The world of Paul's day, of Christ's day, first century Mediterranean world, was a highly secularized, sexually chaotic society. And in the midst of that, the apostles were trying to communicate to the early Christians, to the first Christians, what's summarized really well in 1 Peter chapter 2. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Peter said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Now, he's talking to Jewish and Gentile Christians. So when Peter says Gentiles, he means outsiders, those outside of the faith community. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that... See, here's the purpose. Here's where holiness meets witness. So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Look, if you're a Christian and you mean it, the world's going to look at you like you're funny. The world's going to say you're not intelligent, you're backwards, you're legalistic, you're a freak. It's only starting to happen in our society now, but the early Christians dealt with it every day. The culture looked at them as freaks. And Peter is saying, let them call you freaks. But live such admirable lives for Jesus that although they call you freaks and oddballs, they will see your good deeds and change their minds because you're offering them an alternative countercultural lifestyle that is actually liberating. Nancy Piercy wrote a very important book last, well, published a very important book last year called Love Thy Body. And she tries to explain how the Rome, the, the Roman society and the Greek society of the first century world, when, when Christianity was beginning, it was a sexually chaotic society in which Christians became countercultural and actually the Christian community They were the people who were protecting, for the first time in secular history in that part of the world, protecting the rights of children and babies, protecting the rights of women, protecting the rights of slaves in a society where a free male was at the top of the food chain and nobody else had rights. And so Nancy Nancy Piercy uh, writes that today's sexually chaotic Western society uh, is ripe for Christians once again offering healing alternatives. She says Christians must once again become known as those who honor the whole person. 
The reason they speak out on moral issues, listen to this, the reason they speak out on moral issues should not be because their beliefs are being threatened or because they feel offended. They should erase the word offended from their vocabulary. She's talking to Christians now. Erase the word offended from their vocabulary. After all, Christians are called to share in the offense of the cross. This is not about us. Christians must make it clear that they are speaking out because they are genuinely, because they genuinely care about people. People rarely change their minds if all they hear is moral condemnation. People must be drawn in by a vision that attracts them by offering a more appealing, more life-affirming worldview with actions that treat people with genuine dignity and worth. And that's kind of going to be a template for what we explore over the next two weeks. And I'll probably quote her again. If you're sexually broken, to be healed, you must pursue relationships where truth is shared in the context of grace. The truth can set you free when you're finally able to hear it. You're able to hear it when it's spoken to you in love. Now, what seems to kill this paradigm, what seems to kill this balance of truth and grace in a holy community is exactly what Paul's primary concern was, pride. Pride kills the balance of truth and grace for restoration and healing. Paul says in verse 2, and you're arrogant, right? So this is happening. The community knows about it. The outsiders are embarrassed about it. And you're arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? If you're a Christian, you know, what are all the things that, that the church community in America boasts about? Our doctrine and, and, and our theology and, um, and our political perspective? And uh, what are all the things that Christians boast about without looking at themselves and seeing that the, the, same, the same dysfunctional and broken sexual patterns in our society are happening right here in our families, in our homes, within our own minds and bodies. And Paul says, and you're arrogant. Ought you not to mourn? Pride blinds us. And Jesus called the Pharisees blind guides who lead other people into a pit, the blind leading the blind. Pride blinds us from seeing the sin within us. And guess what? Pride blinds us from seeing the humanity in other people. Some of us are prideful in the sense that we don't think we're broken. Some of us are prideful in the sense that we don't care that we're broken. But as Paul says, the judge, the judge of history is coming back to justly condemn you for the ways you do not honor God with the body He has given you, with the mind that He has given you. The judge is coming back. And you don't want that form of discipline when Jesus comes back. Unless, unless you submit now to his discipline. Unless you submit now to his loving discipline confronting you with the truth in a spirit of grace so that you can hear it. 
but pride must go. Pride has got to go. Whether you don't think you're broken or whether you don't care that you're broken, pride has got to go in you, in me, in us as a faith community. Pride must go for us to become a community where the sexually broken can believe there's hope for healing. The church has always been, thank God, open to the community struggling with addictions. We welcome them in. The community struggling with sexual brokenness, are we willing to say this is a safe place for you to hear the truth in a spirit of grace? Notice I haven't left out the truth because there is objective truth. But notice that we haven't left out grace because truth doesn't matter if it's not brought to us in a spirit of grace. And the means for that healing, the means for the restoration that we're talking about and we'll be talking about over the next two weeks, the means for it, the means for that healing has already been provided to us. Paul shows us the gospel in verses seven and eight. Again, he uses, he uses Passover and feast of unleavened bread language from the book of Exodus and the Mosaic law. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. This is, this is the basis of why he tells them, you got to live a holy life. You got to speak the truth in love to one another because Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Now the Jewish Passover, it, it, it wasn't primarily about an individual's sin being forgiven. There was another feast for that. The Passover was primarily about an entire people's redemption from oppression. The Passover was for Jews to remember they were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them and God liberated them. And really, that's what holiness is. Have you ever considered it that way? That holiness, distinctiveness for Jesus in the world is not about legalism and condemnation. Holiness is about freedom. Holiness is the mark of liberation and freedom, that we're no longer under the bondage that the rest of the world is under. Jesus didn't carry your sexual sin to the cross so that you would have to pick it up and carry it for the rest of your life. He crucified it on the cross. And there is absolute a promise of hope for anybody who wants to heal. You want to stay broken for the rest of your life. I can't help you. But you want to trust Jesus to walk with you who killed your sin on the cross and is now calling you to holiness in his name for his sake to live a distinct life. What the world promises is not freedom. It is just more bondage. Sexually speaking, freedom is holiness where we speak the truth to one another in love. The Bible isn't barring, the Bible isn't barring you from healing. The Bible is calling you to healing. But to surrender, to surrender the sins that Jesus has already died for, to surrender them, uh, to heal, We've got to pursue truth with grace. And, and we as a church must, this is a groundwork for the next three weeks. 
we as a church must be committed to the death of pride. And we must be committed to the hope of healing. This must become a safe community for people to hear truth. We are always going to preach the truth by God's grace. We're not going to dilute it. We're going to be countercultural. But we must be about grace because the truth alone doesn't save. The truth came to us as a person, a person who died in our place. It is the grace of God that saves us. It is the truth of God that reveals that grace to us. And so we must be committed to the death of pride as a holy people and to the hope of healing. Sexual healing requires the pursuit of truth and grace as a holy community. And the church must become the safest place. Think about this and chew on this for a week. The church must become the safest place for truth and grace to abound. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would teach us what it means to live in holiness and help us to see holiness not as a straight jacket, but as the pronouncement and process and path to freedom. Father, I ask that you would give us the kind of wisdom that Paul was trying to impart to the Christians in Corinth because we see a lot of ourselves in them. Uh, We see a lot of our culture in the Corinthian culture. Uh, So we ask for the same wisdom that Paul's been talking about in the beginning of his letter so that we can rightly discern your will, your liberating, healing will for our lives, for our sexuality, for our bodies, for our minds, for our habits. Father, would you make Deep Run Church the safest place in Westminster for truth and grace to abound toward healing and restoration? And I say that with trembling and great fear, not sure what you will put us through, that we may be such a place of truth and grace. But in the name of Jesus Christ, who died for us and called us into freedom, we praise you and worship you and submit ourselves to you. Heal us, Emmanuel. Amen.